Well, good morning, everyone. We wrap up the last Sunday of Advent. It seems just four Sundays fly by, uh, but that's what it is in anticipation of the birth of Christ and the Lord's, uh, the world's Savior. So this is the fourth Sunday, which, uh, as the Howard said, is the fourth candle. It's the candle of love. And on Christmas Eve, we'll light the white candle, which is the Christ candle. And then you know it's Christmas when we do that. So that'll be very cool. And as Charlie mentioned earlier, uh, we hope you come on Christmas Eve and bring friends because it's actually a very, spe- very, very special night. So we'll be very excited about that. So this final Sunday morning, we discover uh, the theme has been windows, the windows of Christmas. And uh, we find that the window between heaven and earth is wide open with the birth of Christ at its very best, you might say, with love. The creator comes uh, into his own creation. This is going to get thick here for a second. The creator comes into his own creation as one of its creatures. Yea, as one of its lowliest creatures during the oppressive uh, political time of the Roman Empire. The creator comes. Not only does he come into hard times, but he comes in as a peasant. The child of a peasant, of a peasant mother. And they come in, uh, he doesn't even have a room. And he comes into a stable and is laid in a food trough for a bassinet. And not only that, besides the Romans, there's also then the ruthless King Herod, who is a puppet king and out for power on his own, you know, what he thinks is his own right. And so he's doing his business on the people and murders his own brothers and so forth. Very ruthless character that Rome, I think, really enjoyed having him be the bad guy instead of them. And not only that, but then when you go to the religious thing, you'd think there'd be some glimmer of hope in the religious situation with Jesus' birth. There isn't. Instead, what you have are the fundamentalist, moralistic Pharisees telling the people that if they do not keep Torah, if they do not keep the law in exactitude, then God will not relent the punishment upon the nation that's been there for over 900 years. Into this situation, the very lowest of times, Jesus is born. God comes to his creation. And for Jesus, in his ministry, and probably even throughout the rest of scriptures, which we'll see in small snippets this morning, what we see is probably the best metaphor to make sense of things is sheep. (laughs) It's sheep. For some reason, Jesus thought sheep was the best metaphor to explain the times and to explain what was really going on. And he doesn't answer all the questions about the Roman Empire and the Pharisees and all the rest of this. He simply talks about sheep. And so here we pick it up. Uh, We're working through the Gospel of John this Christmas, albeit I understand that the Gospel of John doesn't have a nice, cute angels and shepherds and, you know, nativity scene. The the Gospel of John actually starts with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. It actually echoes back to the creation story. It doesn't have anything to do with little shepherds and angels and mangers and all this sort of thing. John wants to tell a bigger tale. It's probably the last gospel written, probably around 80 A.D., when Christ uh, really ascends to heaven, around 30, 33 A.D. So it's the last one. So you, you're, John's writing the gospel, it says, to Christians. It says, you already know the manger story. Let me tell you a larger story about creation, what God's really up to. So we understand that. And then if you were here last week, you also understand that all of that great story and everybody following Jesus just falls apart by chapter 6. It's 21 chapters long, the Gospel of John. By chapter 6, it is finished. It is, Jesus is no longer followed by everyone. It's all falling apart. And from chapter 6 until about chapter 12, what you have is very few people following Jesus in John's Gospel. 
and people scratching their head. Jesus continues arguing with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and his own disciples keep not understanding what he's talking about. And this is one of these passages. If you have your Bible with you, it's in John chapter 10, or if you want to pull it up on the Lakeland app, uh, it would be right there too in the Bible. So I'm reading out of a translation called the New Revised Standard, uh, which is a fairly straight-ahead translation, not very paraphrased or flowery. Uh, Here it is. Very truly, John chapter 10, very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. Now, just by the way, stop for a second. Historically, the sheep pens were a low rock wall in Palestine, still are actually today. Very low. The sheep, for some reason, are too stupid to climb out, but that's okay. Uh, We're going to talk more about stupid sheep here in a moment. Uh, And there's a gate, and so the shepherds would spend their night away, perhaps in a shack or a tent, or actually really tribal tent. And there may be somebody watching guard over the sheep at night, so there's no thief, and that's really kind of the gatekeeper. Okay, so you have these little rock pens, and in the morning, the shepherd would come, and when he calls to the sheep, the sheep would follow him out, because they know who he is, which you're going to see right here. Okay, verse 2. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 6. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus says to them, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand, who, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because the hired hand doesn't care for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for my sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from the Father. Verse 19. Again, the Jews were divided because of these words and many of them were saying, he has a demon, he's out of his mind, why listen to him? And others were saying, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Sheep are a favorite metaphor of Jesus. Probably because sheep made for useful story subjects because sheep are so prone to wander and get lost. Sheep seem particularly, how shall we put it, stupid. They are dumb. They don't have common sense. I think most of us out here in Missouri, we grew up around cows. Cows, you know, they just kind of do their own thing. They're good, you know, they just kind of sit around and wait to become hamburger. They're fine. They're, you don't need to worry about them too much. But sheep, you've got to worry about them nonstop. And so sheep seems to be Jesus' favorite metaphor because it becomes suddenly very quite clear. 
Folks, you and I are sheep. We're a lot like sheep because we don't trust the shepherd of our soul. We're a lot like sheep because we go looking for something better against common sense. We wander. We, we, we're, we're, we don't trust the shepherd. We have everything anybody could possibly want in the shepherd. And yet we don't stay close. Why? Well, Jesus teaches us all about sheep because shepherds and sheep are in a love relationship. Don't take this too far with me, okay? But they are in a love relationship. They're, and just to use a word that's probably, you know, will sound inappropriate in our day and age, but in a sense, they have an intimate relationship. That really sounds weird. But they are. And I don't mean that in, you know, the usual modern day sense. In other words, they know each other. They trust each other. Jesus says that the hired hands and the thieves, they don't give a rip about the sheep. Both hirelings and robbers are only interested in the profit from the sheep. They don't care if the sheep live or die. They don't care how many they lose. They don't care when they die as long as they get their money out of the whole thing. Hirelings and thieves, they turn sheep into a commodity. They commodify the sheep. They just want to buy and sell them in a marketplace. And Jesus wants everyone he comes in touch with to know that he is a good shepherd. He knows the sheep. He loves the sheep. And the sheep follow his voice. And God is like the sheep owner. The son and the father own the sheep. And if Jesus had to overcome one huge obstacle in his day, when you look through the Gospels over and over and over, what you find Jesus constantly trying to get through everyone's thick sheep skull is that they got the wrong picture of God. The Pharisees in particular thought God was a judgmental, cranky old dude that hated everyone. And just the surrounding culture, the pervasive Roman Empire all around them with their gods, the god of Jupiter, the god of gods, the god of Mars, the god of war. You have Neptune, the god of the sea, you know, and, and all these other Percy Jackson things going on. But nonetheless, that's the, and all those gods had to be appeased. None of them were happy with you at any given moment. If you didn't offer the right prayer, or the right offering, or give the right money, or do the right temple service to each and every one of those, those Roman gods, you were going to be in trouble. And the Pharisees are just one mark over. They just had one God, but that God was not happy. I contend that we still have that same God today. How many times do you have to look at the newspaper or in a magazine or anything else around the internet or look at South Park and you find God is a cranky old dude? He's cranky, he's sitting on a big throne, he has a long white beard, he's old and he's really crotchety and he's got a handful of lightning bolts and he's looking for somebody to mess up that day just to make his day so he can hurl a lightning bolt at somebody and blast them. And it sounds like a cartoon. The problem is, is that cartoon's really taken from life and that's the way we actually really think about God these days. Judgmental, cranky, a holdout. He's commodified as people, people think just to be bought and sold, thrown to hell, or put into heaven. And sometimes you think he puts you into heaven and he's kind of sad about it. The Pharisees thought God was punishing the nation for not keeping the law and the Torah. But Jesus walks in, constantly redefining who is God. God is a God of love. God is a parent. God is a father. God loves you more than himself. God is intimately uh, in touch with each of us. God knows each and every one of you. God watches our every move. 
Nothing we do escapes his love. He's like a parent watching over a small child. Uh, 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 no, 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 don't touch the hot stove. Oh, no, no, don't go out in the traffic. Oh, don't tip over the trash can. On and on and on. And then every now and then they can't just be there. And you're like, ah, well, you fell down. You know, and that's why that, you got a black eye. Nothing happens to you that God doesn't notice. A child will wander and a child will test a parent's love. And we seem to want to do it all the time in our sheepness. We want to wander. Philip Keller. Philip Keller is a modern-day shepherd. Yes, they're still around. Modern-day shepherd, and he describes one sheep. Keller describes one sheep that had a fatal flaw of distrust. The sheep didn't trust the shepherd, Keller says. And so he tells the story. He says, I once owned a ewe whose conduct exactly typifies this sort of distrusting person. She was one of my most attractive sheep that ever belonged to me. Her body was beautifully proportioned. She had a strong constitution, an excellent coat of wool. Her head was clean, alert, well set with bright eyes. She bore sturdy lambs and they matured rapidly. But in spite of all the attractive attributes, she had one pronounced fault. She was restless, discontented, a fence crawler. No matter what field or pasture the sheep were in, he says, she would search all along the fence of the shoreline looking for a loophole she could crawl through and start feeding on the other side. It's not that she lacked pasturage. My fields were the joy and my delight. No sheep in the district had better grazing. Fence crawling was an ingrained habit. She was simply never content with the things as they were. Often when she had forced her way around the end of the wire at the low tide at the beach, she would end up feeding on bare, brown, burned up pastures of a most inferior sort. But she never learned her lesson and continued to fence crawl time after time. Distrustful, discontented fence crawlers. That's what we are. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53 says. Jesus looked at the people and he felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he says. On and on throughout scripture, we're compared to sheep. We fence crawl, we don't trust, we end up scrapping around on bare, dry dirt, trying to find something to eat, trying to live. Mostly we all go astray. In the Bible, at the beginning of humanity's story, when we are given the image of God within us, that creation story that John's hearkening back to in the beginning, you know, God created, that part that's put inside of our souls, so to speak, that, that spiritual DNA, Adam and Eve, they had complete fellowship with God. They didn't lack anything. Everything they had was right there. The whole idea of the garden of paradise was that they were completely content. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no, I got to get up in the morning and go do this and go do that. Everything was a delight. It is even hard for us to even conceive of being absolutely free of no, of being absolutely free of any anxiety in life. What got you out of bed this morning? What will get you out of bed tomorrow morning? Somewhere in there is something that says, A voice from outside of you that says, I must, I gotta, I should. They had everything Adam and Eve did. Everything was right there. Mostly because they just walked 
in the cool of the afternoon in the garden with God. There was just one rule. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Or you'll die. Now, they didn't die the way we think of dying. Actually, they didn't even understand death. Death is, in the Bible sense, the very first death is, is a death being separated from God. That's the worst death, actually, according to Paul. So, so being human, what do they do? They go for the one tree. We're not really sure why. Except for this, that somehow Satan had put this small, twisted bit of truth into their mind. Remember, Satan never lies to you. Satan just takes what the truth is and just puts a question mark at the end. Did he say not eat from the tree? Because you'll be like him? Ah, that's the great temptation, isn't it? This is what I deal with when I take you on retreat and when we do all sorts of discipleship around here. It's constantly trying to say to you, you're trying to be God. Sooner or later, in any sort of retreat format, my wife and I talk about it from taking people on retreat, sooner or later you get around to this one thing. I'm going to have to give up control. That original sin in the garden is still going on today. You have to give up control. But they wanted control, and so they ate from the tree. And at that point, they died. And exactly like Satan said, they became like God. They knew good from evil. And at that point, they died inside. That's the way it works. That same pattern stuck inside of us is still going on. You'll be like God. And from that point on, we begin to fence crawl. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe God's not watching over me. Maybe God doesn't care. God, do you really know what's going on in my life? Maybe, God, you're just a punishing God. Maybe you're like Apollo or Neptune or Mars or Jupiter. For us, we don't rest. We just fence crawl. Every day is fence crawling. You see, everyone, the reminder this Sunday before Christmas is that we need Christmas and we need it bad. We need Christmas real bad. We need to give gifts to each other for no apparent reason. We need to receive gifts for no apparent reason. We need to give and we need to take with no strings attached. You need to get together with your family. Yes, I know it's the hardest part of Christmas, but you need to get together with your family and give people for no good reason gifts and receive them from people for no good reason. Just radical acts of kindness and generosity. You need to throw money like mad into the red bucket. You need to give away to other charities. You need to give things away, not saying like, oh, they deserve it or they don't deserve it. Oh, that guy there on the homeless ramp, he doesn't, you know, the guy, the homeless guy at the top of the ramp, he doesn't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to him. All that sort of thing, you just need to give it away. It's about you. It's not about them. So we have to work hard at training ourselves not to fence crawl and to trust that God loves us. And it sounds so simple to say God is love and God loves you and you expect me to say that. And the simple fact is we're all sheep and we don't believe it. We know it in our head, but we don't live like it. Gift giving is a theological love. (laughs) Gift giving is a theological love. And there's a theology and there's a psychology behind it that's thicker than any of us can ever think. I've been reading a pretty thick uh, French philosopher lately a woman named uh, Simon Weil. And Simon Weil 
uh, died of tuberculosis during World War II. And she's French, if you can't tell. And uh, she said some very, very interesting things about God. She said some pretty peculiar things about God, but she said some really brilliant things, as most philosophers do. And she said this. She said this. She said that God is a God who empties himself over and over and over. God empties himself over and over and over. And then she says this really peculiar thing that you kind of have to scratch your head on. She said that when God created, God became less than God. You're like, wait a second, that sounds like heresy. You're like, nah, it's philosophy. I don't know if it's heresy. It could be. What she's saying is, is that every time God creates, every time God creates, God becomes less. God, the true God, she's saying, and she's totally Christian, by the way. She's saying every time God creates, God, God becomes less God. When God came into the manger and laid there in that food trough, God was less God, right? Became a human being, a, a peasant child. When, when God went to the cross in Jesus Christ and was crucified by a sheep, God became less, right? He emptied himself, becoming less and less and less. And I, I know in our American mentality, that is a really, really foreign idea. We don't like the idea of God becoming less and less. We like a powerful God. We like a, 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 a kit fanning God. We, we need a, a dominant God. We like hymns like a mighty fortress is our God. We like hymns like a battle hymn of the Republic where God is trampling out the vintage of the wrath is, you know, is stored and all that sort of thing. We like that kind of God. A God laying in his own diaper in a food trough? What? God becoming less? Until you have this thought, as a parent, what wouldn't you do for your child? Do you become less human as a parent? Oh, yeah, you do. You lose sleep. You lose food. You gain weight. You lose weight. You lose hair. You lose teeth. You lose everything in life when you become a parent. Out of love. You become great at love. In indescribable words, and you become less you. Everyone knows that. This is the way it works, you see. Love takes away and makes you into something that you never planned to be. I know that night when I was shaking like a leaf when I asked Lori to marry me. And I knew the reason why I was shaking like a leaf is because I knew I was going to not be all of me anymore. I knew that I wouldn't get to put the silverware away in the drawer the way it's supposed to be done. The way God intended it. Love always descends. Love always pays attention. Love always becomes less. And that's what God does with us at Christmas. And if we fail to that, understand that, then we don't understand the baby Jesus. And in America these days, just to make this side comment, just our head scratching, we have a hard time understanding a God that would care about criminals and thugs and terrorists because our God is supposed to hate the people that hate us and we hate them back. And you have to begin to wonder, is that really God? And that'll mess with us all day long in America. Isn't it little wonder isn't it little wonder in our culture today that a success-driven nation has turned gift-giving not into an act of love, but into a Black Friday and a Cyber Monday? 
that we've commodified the entire holiday. That it's turned into something that if we don't do it, then we don't make, we don't make our bottom line in this country. But the message of love flows through the open window of Christmas and it says, become less, become less, become less, become less. Um, I've been working for years and years now on this less and less thing. And and I have to constantly pay attention. And like I'm saying about retreat, when I take you on retreat, I'll try and get you to pay attention as well to what God's doing in you, okay? And the whole point of retreat is that you learn to pay attention to what's going on between you and God. And we call this prayer, by the way. But I try and take my spiritual pulse. And you know, uh, if you've ever been asked like in a small group or something like that, like, hey, what's your dashboard like these days? You know, you ever get the dashboard question? Like, what's your dashboard? You know, fuel gauge, RPM, speedometer, check engine light. What, who, where are you at these days, right? So for me, I have a gauge on my dash that's called irritability. And I know that I am tripping whatever engine light sensor when I'm irritable. Because the weird part about irritability is, is I can be laughing and mucking it up and having a great time. And then suddenly, bam, I'm irritable. What happened? It's really weird. I'm just laughing and everybody's happy and it's great. But somewhere in there, man, they're hitting the red line right over there. Like, chung, 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 and like, I'm irritable. How did I get angry about the silverware drawer? I don't know. I just suddenly am. Something's not right in my little weird universe. Irritability says that I'm no longer human and that I'm expecting the world and the universe to turn out just like me. And as I look back over my journal, how many times I've written, Lord, why am I angry? How can I be so irritable when I wasn't? And page after page says the same thing. Strange, isn't it? Somewhere in there, it's probably because I don't want to become less. I keep trying to be all powerful. I keep putting myself right back in the garden saying, I want to be God. How come everybody isn't doing what I say? I told them what to do. I had these thoughts, right? How come everybody didn't read my mind? I've forgotten what Christmas is all about, becoming less and less. And I've just drifted away from God, and I've become irritable. But every now and then, there's a little bit of light that shines in. When I've worked really hard at it, every now and then I make the right kind of a decision. And a little decision goes on like this. A while back, a guy in a pickup truck came over into my lane and about ran me off the road. He didn't mean to. It was that typical sort of, you know, going down the freeway sort of mistake, right? And, and he swerved back, and he waved several times, kind of saying, like, hey, man, my bad, you know, I'm sorry, and all that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I had at that moment every right to, to give him a, a pointer <laughs> about his error, you know? Because that was in my right, because I somehow thought that I almost died and property damage and, you know, how sad my wife would be and all that. But that little conversation happens instantly in your mind when you keep training yourself on this sort of love that says, you know what? I think I've made that mistake too. 
I think one time in my mistake, I, I probably pulled over into somebody's lane just once because I'm as pure as the driven snow, and I know I've only done that once. Matter of fact, I probably never have done it, but I'm just going to pretend like I've done it once because I've never made a driving error in my whole life. But if I just imagine enough, maybe I've done that same thing, I can put myself in his shoes, and I can think like, yeah, 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 we all make mistakes. So that's one half of the, uh, the other half of the conversation that's going on in your, set, in your head. You can give him the pointer, or you can tell him like, hey, everybody messes up. And so I kind of weigh back like, no bad, you know, it's all good. This is the way God's thinking about us all day long. It's good. Don't worry about it. It's fine, I'm with you. It's not a fatal error. It's all good. I love you. I mean, really, how bad can it be? It can be real bad. I still love you. God's given us the wave. It's cool. It's good. You're a sheep. I know you do that sort of thing. So what do you say, fellow sheep? Are we going to understand Christmas is Friday? Are we going to get it this Thursday night? Are we going to understand it's all about love? Are we going to be light and easy when it comes to gift giving and receiving stuff? Are you going to lighten up on who's going to show up and how come they're not exactly there at 7.03 just like you planned it and all the rest of that sort of thing? Are you going to tread light on the steel? Are you going to have a good time? Are you going to understand? Are you going to take the less and less journey, the downward journey of this Christmas, the love journey? Or are you going to get all uptight and wound up and, you know, while your you know, mashed potatoes are cooking or something? What are you going to do? Who are you going to be? How's it going to go for you? Will you realize that God emptied himself into a manger? That he emptied himself upon the cross? That he's continuing to empty himself for you right now, this very moment, sitting in church? Will we lose the right to get even? To go around telling the world the way they ought to be? Will we understand this? Will we understand the heart of Christianity? Or will we fence crawl? Or will we follow the good shepherd? You have a micro decision to make this week. And I pray that every moment during Christmas, when it's supposed to be a good time, <laughs> that you work tremendously hard in making that small micro decision to say like, it's cool, it's okay, don't worry. It's all good. And just take it easy. That's a deep theological point. That's not just being, you know, be happy kind of a thought. This is you being identified as a child of God. It's that serious. Would the servers come forward for the Lord's table, please? You see, when you come to the table today, I propose that you come thinking of it as a gift. That you come thinking that it's a gift because that's exactly what Jesus intended it to be. It's a gift of salvation. It's a gift of belonging. It's a gift with no strings attached. So it's a gift that says on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat this. Take this into yourself. My presence will be with you. It's a gift. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me because it's a gift. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, because it's a gift. And so I propose that when you come forward and you tear off a piece of the bread and you dip it in the chalice and you eat it, not only do you say to the person who has the chalice, you say, uh, and also with you, they'll say, the peace of the Lord be with you, and you're supposed to say, and also with you. So there's a little tip for you in case you never knew that. But I would also just say that you say to God Almighty, you say, thank you. Thank you for being my shepherd. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for thinking about me that there's nothing I can ever do in my life that will make you not love me. Thank you. You can return to your seat. You can go by the little side tables over here if you need to kneel to the cross and confess, say like, I've just been trying to be in control my whole life. I never stop trying to be in control. I just need to bend a knee before the cross. Like, that's a good idea. Maybe that's you this morning. Or just return in silence and just sit there and just think like, it's all a gift, God. May I stop treating it like I gotta earn it. Stop fence crawling. Would you stand with me, please? as we proclaim our faith. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. Come forward whenever you're ready. Well, everyone, um, we come to pop quiz time. And the pop quiz is, are you going to come to 4 o'clock or 5.30 on Thursday night? And so now, with no premeditation and not talking about it, no side glances, at the count of three, you're going to turn to some strange person next to you, probably your spouse, and tell them which service you're coming to, 4 or 5.30. Ready? One, two, three. And there's your argument for the way home. Okay, so there you go. But I told them they're supposed to be over at 5. How are we going to... And all that kind of thing. All right. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, just a couple of things then. Uh, year in giving is December 31st at midnight. So if you planned on giving a gift uh, to the church and to Fearless or whatever else you plan to give to around here, then you'll want to get that in and done by then. And uh, so you can do it online or so forth, but you'll want to make sure you get that in if you can. So just a reminder on that sort of deal. And I think that about wraps it up. So would you stand with me, please? And... Um, we will close with a longer Celtic Christmas benediction. The Celtic tradition is from Northumbria and Great Britain. It's up on the, the northeast coast of Great Britain. It's up where the tides are high and the water's icy cold. You need to think back. This is from the 7th century, so you've got to think back to kind of Norse thinking, you know. And if you're of my type, you kind of think a little bit of Monty Python here and then or something like that. But sorry, it's kind of mixing religion and Monty Python. I know it's probably, well, I do it all the time. But nonetheless, um, so you want to think of this sort of thing. So the ocean's very important to them, and that'll come into some of the words here that we're about to say, all right, where as though God is stepping onto the shore and coming to earth, okay? Very cool imagery. So it's longer, so you have your part, and I have my part. Ready? Let's end this way. Wait with watchful heart. Listen carefully. Listen, hear the telling of the waves upon the shore. Listen, hear the song of the angels' Ere long it will be heard that his foot has reached the earth, news that the glory is come. Truly, salvation is near for those who fear him, and his glory shall dwell in our land. Watch and pray, the Lord shall come. Those who are longing await his appearing, 
Those who listen, the latest cry. Watch.